We are live, and this is Comfort Ye Thy uh, My People, Lesson 3. Joshua, you're up. Alrighty. Um, yes, Comfort Ye My People. This is uh, taking a look at the neck, the haftar that is going to be coming up for this Shabbat coming. Um, that is, of course, assuming... Oh, I see we have some more guests. Um, that is, of course, assuming that you're following along with this particular haftar reading. I know there's some different ones, depending on which group on who your rabbi is, I suppose you might say. Um, but in Isaiah 54 through 55, welcome, welcome. Hello, hello. We have honored guests here this evening. Honored guests. You get the highest seat in the land. Good to see you, John. Josh is up to God, Father. Yeah. <laughs> Good to see you, sir. So, Isaiah 54 through 55, um, we talk about food, which is kind of an interesting reference. Um, uh, in, in speaking to the people, Hashem asks them a question. He says, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. What's interesting about this particular passage is um, the implication here is that it's not it's not so much that they would receive good things if they obey God. Um, in other words, they would be fed well if they're obedient. Um, but rather, it seems that the actual words of God would be what they would be, uh, quote unquote, eating. Uh, what satisfies. Um, this is a very uh, understandable concept. If you think about the way that food, how food is treated throughout the scriptures. Uh, the food in the Bible is oftentimes a, a, a symbol, an a, a allegory for that sense of satisfaction, for that sense of accomplishment. If you read Ecclesiastes or Kohelet, um, that basically is the, the whole you know, point of life besides serving God is eat from the work of your, of your hands and be satisfied. I mean, that's basically the whole thing you're doing over and over and over again in that in that book. Solomon mentions it, I think, three or four times. My wife, who is a fee, is a big fan of those passages. <laughs> um, we, um, the, uh, but then you also see the imagery shows elsewhere in Scripture. Um, Yeshua talks about those who do not eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Again, obviously being very allegorical. <clears throat> Sorry, Catholic friends. Um, allegorical there. Uh, again, talking the same imagery, he talks about drinking from the river of life. You get a lot of these pictures of food and drink and what they mean for us. And in, uh, in Deuteronomy 8, we get just the opposite. Well, you kind of get this too. Well, yes, it, you, get, you get both, I guess, really, is what it boils down to, if I can if I remember my reference correctly. Whoops. Here we go. Yeah, so uh, Deuteronomy 8, if someone could read... Verses 2 through 5. Okay. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that the man, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Uh, in their podcast, that was last week maybe, um, on this portion, Yves Fleischer um, and his guest, uh, I believe that particular one may have been Shlomo Katz. Anyway, they were talking about this idea about um, man does not live by bread alone. And um, actually, no, it was Rabbi, it was Rabbi Mike Hoyer. My apologies. Anyway, the, um, the idea being that man does not live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds in the mouth of God, is this concept that um, we are not animals. You know, animals live by, by necessity. They, they um, in fact, a lot of animals literally only, uh, they, don't st they don't store any food. Some, some do, but a lot of animals really just eat, li live, <laughs> Talk about living hand to mouth. I mean, as literally as they possibly can. Paw to mouth. Paw to mouth. Um, I recently heard that wolves 
um, actually would basically engorge themselves whenever they find a kill or find meat because they have no way of keeping it. So it's like, well, hey, this could be the last meal. Let's make it last as long as possible. Um, well, there's, there's, a, there's a saying in business these days, if you don't have recurring revenue, you need to kill, but you need to eat every day. Right. That feels familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as a salesman. Um, <laughs> yes, but I think that the, but the idea, though, here is, um, is that animals are driven by these uh, physical needs. And, and this passage is, uh, is really getting at is that humans are above that. Humans are not animals. We may have physical needs, but God and his uh, a service, of, a service of God is ultimately a higher uh, calling for us an opportunity to transcend our physical needs. I mean, the most critical example of that is Yeshua, who goes 40 days in the wilderness with no bread, no water. Um, he fasts 40 days, uh, which is a parallel to Moses, who does the same thing on the mountain, as we learned about, I believe, in this week's or last week's parsha. Um, and uh, what does he do? When he gets tempted by, by Hasatan um, to, to try to wield his power for his own selfish needs or whatever, he responds with this verse. Man does not live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Um, what's interesting about that is that there's an interesting parallel between um, Yeshua and the Word of God. So we mentioned in our study this week that if you um, didn't remember that, you should read the book, the first chapter of John. Um, in case you didn't do that or uh, or have forgotten what it was since you read it earlier this week, we are going to look at the first chapter of John. Um, tonight, just real briefly, I just want to take a look at some things. But first, before we go there, I want to go to Proverbs chapter 8. So Proverbs chapter 8, just to kind of set this up, is a, um, is a passage that is a, uh, it's a personification of wisdom. Um, uh, this is a contrast, by the way, to Proverbs chapter 7, which is the adulterous woman. So Proverbs chapter 7 is the immoral woman who um, is out looking for prey and to seduce men, some man, to, uh, to fall. Um, chapter 8 then uh, follows on top of that chapter and instead talks about wisdom. And it has wisdom actually giving a speech. Uh, wisdom has her own words. Personified. Personified, right. Did so, you pick um, it up in 12? So what? You pick it up in 12? I was actually going to pick up on, um, let's pick up on 8. So if I could get, yes, please, if you would read verses uh, 8 through, um, read 8 through 21. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil, and perverted speech, I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness and the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Doesn't this sound like Isaiah 50, 55? Get that same imagery? Um, why do you spend your bread for what does not satisfy? Said God says, come listen to me, and I will basically overflow you, really, what it boils down to. Um, and that's exactly what wisdom is calling out here. Wisdom saying, I offer a lot of perks just for having me, um, just me. And then on top of that, because the way the universe is structured to work, you're going to find a lot of other blessings along the side of the way as well. Mm -hmm. um, but who is wisdom? And what is wisdom? Um, if someone else would like to read uh, verse 22. Uh, Let's go 22 through 36. Let's go to the end of the chapter. Wait, that's right. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. 
when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there, when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and, and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life, and obtains favor from my denial. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Then let's, uh, so you have the passages there, wisdom saying, look, I was there at the very beginning. In fact, not only was I there, I was the, I was the tool, I was the way that Hashem made the universe. Uh, which, if those of us who are familiar with the apostolic scriptures, sounds pretty familiar. Someone could look up John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, with, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was in the light of men. And then, does someone have verse fourteen? And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Something like that. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, so clearly, uh, John, in his, in his gospel, is, um, I think he's alluding to this passage from, from Wisdom, in Proverbs chapter 8, because he's making an interesting tie-in. He's tying in the Word of God, uh, which is considered to be the creative power with which God made the universe, um, with, with Mashiach, with, with, his, with his person, so to speak. Um, and... Uh, not unlike what Proverbs, what Proverbs 8 does, wisdom, and giving this personification that later says, hey, I was there, and I was, I was the tool that was used to make everything. Um, and this is important because I think that as we, as we, dig, into, um, as we dig into Yeshua and the Mashiach and who he is and what he does, one of the things uh, um, that's very important is his connection to the Torah. In Ramban's, Rambam, excuse me, Rambam. I'm gonna get that right one of these days. Um, in Rambam's uh, uh, teachings on Mashiach, he has this idea that um, if I can find it here. Uh, uh, here it is. The king arises. So he has a teaching on on Mashiach. He has a list of things that the Messiah is gonna do. Um, one of the things he says is that the king arises from the house of David, who meditates in the Torah and occupies himself with the commandments, like his ancestor David, and skipping down a little bit, he says, and he will prevail upon all of Israel to walk in the ways of the Torah and strengthen its breaches, and he will fight the battles of God, maybe assume that he is Mashiach. So, um, in particular, we, we hear, see here that, that Mashiach's um, connection to the Torah is very important. So, John, and to some degree Proverbs, making this, connect, this, this allusion, this idea that um, the Torah itself is represented in a person. It is, it is, um, it defi it's, so, it's so intertwined with that person that you can't really tell the difference between them. And then John making that connection to Mashiach himself um, is extremely important to us as we think about his merits Messiah. So when you have the, uh, when you have later with this whole concept of uh, when Mashiach says, Yeshua says of himself, that he only spoke what the Father told him to speak. You know, he, um, you get that imagery coming up from, from what we read in this week's parasha from Deuteronomy about the prophets coming after Moses. And uh, actually, not, it's not this week, I think it's later, but it gets alluded to here. Um, the prophet coming after Moses. False prophets. False prophets, right. Against. False prophets speak against the Torah. And the prophet coming after Moses, he's going to speak um, only the words that God gives him to speak. So, um, with all that kind of the background for who Yeshua is and, and his importance, when we get into Isaiah, we start talking about, well, what's the comfort for his people? What's the, what, is he, what is God offering his people? He's saying, look, if you listen to my words, if you follow me, if you do what I do, then 
that will be um, not only rewarding, but transformative. Uh, and what better way than to tie that in to Yeshua? We talked about, I said earlier, who's your rabbi? Well, the whole concept behind the rabbi is to learn from him, to learn how he does things, how he lives. Um, Christians were not uh, the first to come up with what would Jesus do, although they did do an excellent job of making it into um, small bracelets and other um, marketable items. Um, and we appreciate that because it's a very easy you know, thing to re recall very quickly. Uh, it's kind of become a slogan of sorts. And that is exactly the kind of lifestyle that we should have. I do want to go back to our study and some of the passages that you guys actually read this week. And anyone can jump in anytime, by the way. I'm, I'm having fun here, but um, I'm surrounded by well-spoken men. So uh, Let's go to Psalm 19. One of Mr. Martin's favorites. It's really a good one. You'll hear it on the answering machine if you call the number and we don't answer. Oh, really? <laughs> the uh, the whole chapter or just a particular verse? To the choir master for some of us. Hear the choir master. First verse. Very nice. Um, uh, well, in that case, then it only seems fitting that you should read this passage for us. If you the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the works of His hands. How far would you like? Um, <laughs> that's his favorite part. That is his favorite part. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's skip down a little bit. Let's go down to verse seven, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Quit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That last verse there is one, uh, for those of you who do um, the morning prayers, it's uh, inserted there actually twice uh, in the morning prayers. Every morning we pray those. So um, it's, a, it's an incredible passage from David, and really, uh, in many ways, is a, almost like a bite-sized summary of like Psalm 119, which is much, much longer, but same concepts. Um, I have to say, uh, if anyone is feels like the, the Torah is old and done away with and doesn't really have any relevance to our lives anymore, it, it gets very confusing as to exactly what, what it is that David is so enthralled with here. Um, because he doesn't just actually talk about the Torah. He uses one word after another referencing different components of the Torah, um, whether it's instruction or commandments or judgments, which are referencing more between like uh, horizontal relationships and so forth. So um, my dad actually did a really cool study on Psalm 119 one time, if you want to dig into that, um, looking at all the cool key words there. So the point is that um, David really... Um, is in love with the Torah. David really sees, he doesn't see it. What's amazing here is that um, when you read through this passage, it does not talk about, um, it mentions only briefly, one, one reference, in keeping them there is great reward. It's not about getting something for doing the right thing. Doing the right thing is literally its own reward to David. Amen. Um, it, it is something that he delights in and it makes him happy and it satisfies him and it, um, and it is uh, desirable, as you know, as he says there. Um, and that's kind of what, what, we, what Hashem is getting at in Isaiah. Yes, sir. But I think, I think that's that's true. That's exactly what David's heart was, which is why he was so remarkable. Uh, that his heart was turned to the Lord fully, and he desired to please Him. Uh, we see the same thing with Joseph. You know, when uh, tempted, uh, the, the the question was immediately. How could I sin against God right. and my master? Right. Right? He, he recognized that this adulterous event was ultimately a violation of God's word and his relationship with God. 
So a love for the Torah is a love for the, for God. If you if you love His Word, they love the one who gave the Word. It's just, they go part and part. Right. Exactly. And and I think it's um, uh, you know it's, it's it's about wanting to have that connection to Him and wanting to be like Him, wanting to do things that He does. I mean, if you uh, I tell you one of the that make make you feel incredibly special I, um, when when you have your your child wants to do something that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I my son is only eleven months old, but every now and again we'll go and do something together, and I'll I'll pick him up and I'll carry him with me. It's like you want to go help daddy, and uh, and he, I'll get he kind of gets excited. And he's like dada, dada. It's like he doesn't even he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't even really he's really even not even doing anything, but he's he's working with daddy, and uh, um, what's amazing to me is that that's exciting to him you know i think that's what's really uh heartwarming is it's like it's not just i mean it's great for me i think it's amazing but so does he and i think it's something that like when god's relationship with us that's kind of some of the same idea like we need to have that excitement of being obedient i mean the rocky in the commentary on this week's torah portion he talks about the idea that um the when he talks about the commandments being a delight to you um it's supposed to be like they're like they're always like you're supposed to hearken to them this day. It's like they're always supposed to be new. It's so easy to find the commandments of God to become stale because, especially if you've been studying them for years and years and years, and and almost take them for granted. And it's like the the, the Rashi's comment is to say that no, you should you should make them like they're brand new. Like you you're excited to learn about them. You know His what? Mercies are, are new every day. Right and. Um, and so Yeshua, in coming here as Mashiach, what does he do? What is, so Ram, Rambam, uh, whether you agree with all of his principles of Mashiach or not, this one I think he is pretty well spot on in saying that part of Mashiach's goal is to bring the people of Israel back. Well, that's exactly what Yeshua is doing. I mean, his, what's the message? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Over and over and over again. That's, that is the message. If you love me, you keep my commandments. Right. Um, and he's, and in fact, it's amazing that the message you don't really hear from him um, is, uh, you know, believe in me, my death and resurrection, and you're going to have, you're going to go to heaven. That's not his message. Not to say that that's not true, or that, well, I'm mean, not going to heaven, but everything else about that is true. Um, uh, but it's not, it's that, it's that when he, he was preparing the way, you know, a relationship with God is not about escaping hell. That is just is, is just a part, maybe maybe a very important, maybe the critical part, um, but just a part of that relationship with God. Once the motivator. that a good motivator, not the motivator. oh not the motivator, yeah yeah right right not the motivator um, of the relationship with God, but also the sense that like so Yeshua's death and resurrection enables us to have that closer relationship with Hashem, but that is like the entrance point. So the door is definitely the most important part of the house, you know, if you're on the outside, but once you're in. Um, as, as important and significant as the door is, you, your relationship is about serving God. It's about being in the house. And that's, and that's really what Yeshua is teaching. He's teaching the people of Israel, look, you guys want that relationship to be ongoing. You want that relationship to be experienced. Um, and so he's there teaching them. And so let's go, to, let's go to Matthew chapter 11. Because Yeshua has kind of his own cry. So Hashem and Isaiah, uh, he's talking about, you know... Um, Listen carefully to me, right? Is this almost this idea? This this crying out. Uh, Proverbs eight, wisdom is crying out. Um, Yeshua has his own his own commentary here in Matthew chapter eleven, uh, verse twenty five through thirty. If someone would read that. Okay. At that time, Jesus declared, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth." that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is in your libretto. Um, for the, if you got a chance to read it, um, in the libretto that that Handel 
puts together, he, uh, he specifically, uh, he actually paraphrases this slightly because he wants to use the word he instead of I. Um, but in, his, in this passage, he goes through this listing of things about Mashiach. Um, he starts with, uh, you know, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, shout out of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is the righteous savior, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. Um, that's in Zechariah 9. Then he uh, quotes from Isaiah 35, saying, Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened, talking about these sort of miracles and such and so forth. He quotes from Isaiah 40, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Then he concludes with, Come unto him, all ye that labor. Um, Hand, uh, uh, Charles Jenner and then Handel, who put the music together, they, they seem to definitely understand that this, this um, teaching by Yeshua was an important part of his ministry. I mean, they, they move from his, um, his, his birth, nativity, into his death, and they specifically transition through this passage. You know, they, they saw it as being uh, significant enough that it needed to be included in the best hits of, 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 of the Messianic scripture passages. And um, so my question to you is, what do you think it is that brings rest? When he says, come unto me, um, take my yoke upon you. What what does that mean? What do you think that means? When I first read that, I was thinking it was the Torah. It was the Word. Because we just read, and I guess it was last week's portion, um, it was just about, like, this this Word isn't too hard for you. It, right. It's it's not a burden. It's not over the sea that you need to go get it, you know. Um, and then the the part two about finding rest for your soul sounding very much like restoring your soul which we just read in Psalm 19 mm -hmm. um, so it seemed to me to be speaking of the word of God that Yeshua was reinforcing yeah I think I think that's an excellent take on it and, and you know take my yoke the yoke terminology there is is very much a Torah term um, uh, uh, the idea being that in fact actually there's a um, commentary in uh, this week's Torah portion um, I know it's a Rashi commentary I can't recall if it's actually Rashi says it or not but it talks about like when it says uh, the men of, of uh, bad reputation or ill repute or whatever they're the, the men of Belial is the uh, the term in Hebrew and um, they, uh, one, one sage he interprets that as bleol, which means without a yoke men without, without the yoke of Torah basically is what he's getting at um, so I think there's definitely that, that component there too. Another thing that I thought was interesting is he says, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And it got me thinking about, um, if you remember rereading the uh, Bukkei Avot, you know, it talks about this idea that like, um, it's like, I can't remember the exact terminology, but it's something like, uh, you know, uh, like lust, pride, and, you know, uh, yeah, something like that. All, you know, remove a man from this world. And this idea that like selfish ambition and arrogance are are extremely destructive to mankind. And as you read through, uh, um, you know, Proverbs talks about pride goes before a fall. And this whole idea that um, as we uh, when we make ourselves out to be something um, more than we are, we, we or when we uh, we get kind of obsessed with ourselves. I thought Jerry Wright did a great lesson here one time about pride and saying that there's a there's this um, it's not. Humility is not thinking badly of yourself. It's thinking less of yourself. Um, or not thinking less of yourself. Think about yourself less. Uh, <laughs> so the idea being, that was his quote. The idea being that um, uh, humility is, is, is understanding your role in the universe, understanding your position with God, and basically realizing it's not about you. That doesn't mean that you don't look, you know, look out for a certain degree of your own interests. It doesn't mean that you don't um, appropriately, I think uh, one one uh, description of it that I heard one time, um, and unfortunately I can't recall the name of the book right now, but the um, the idea was like you fill your own space. Mm. Well, that, that was a good a good idea. You know, it's like you know, you know, you're not necessarily a, a floor mat, a doormat, but um, it's like that. Yeah, same same code of ethics, Musar kind of concept, but at the same time. You're also recognizing that you have a role, you know, a place to fill that God has put you in, and that's that's where you belong. Yes, sir. I think we need to recognize that we're not animals, right? The difference between us and animals is that we have a soul, and I think the enlightened ones would recognize that the soul is crying out, is 
searching, is yearning for some type of completion to, as Judaism puts it, um, to, you know, to get back to where it started, you know, that spark of divinity, you know, and these broken shards and all that stuff, and the, the whole uh, reparation of the world. But either way, I mean, there's a, there's a vacuum there that every man has. And whether he's a, a big, brawny, tattooed biker, or he's a, you know, bespeckled accountant going to work and not making any noise all day long. Every man yearns for some type of completion. And many men fritter away their lives looking for that in all the wrong places. And, and, and I think wisdom demonstrates that that satisfaction, that rest for one's soul only comes in a sold-out relationship with the creator of the universe who made us with that yearning. Mm -hmm. There's the rest. Right. It comes there. Uh, yeah, this is, to, this is perfect timing. Today I was listening to a leadership class from Torahlive.com. Uh, Torah and it was really cool that they were talking specifically about leadership and from a Jewish perspective. And one of the things was exactly what you were sort of saying. And he showed a graph of how true humility actually only rises in relation to your idea of your self-worth. So as your self-worth increases, so does your humility. And it's sort of based off of this idea of, we've heard that quote, uh, that it's from the Talmud, I think Sanhedrin something, that uh, the whole world was created for you. And I've never heard this take on that before, but he was like, the point of that verse is not actually to make you feel good about yourself. It's actually to give you a, a glimpse of what your responsibility is here. It's the whole world was created for you to make better alongside God. Like, that's your job now. And uh, when you that's your realize that your self-worth is that God is, is choosing you, and you, you are selected to be a partner with him in making things better, That's that right. is, number one, truly humbling, but number two, it, it inspires you to try to make the world better. Nice. Right, and what, and what more value could you have than that, right, of yourself, to realize that you're, uh, you're called by the, the treasure of the universe, the creator of the universe to partner with him. Um, that reminds me that uh, your son Peter, one time, I think for New Year's Eve one year, he did a little brush or teaching on this concept, and he quoted, I think it's the Baal Shem Tov, and he, said, he quotes that passage, he says, the whole universe was created for you, and the next verse is, I am but dust and ashes. <laughs> it's like, the whole universe was created for you, but you're but dust and ashes. The idea being that it's this, this blend, this understanding of who you really are, and ultimately that you are um, who God wants you to be. And I think this is really interesting. So Yeshua being, I think, the ultimate I mean, the, the fulfillment in every way of, of humility, um, you see that throughout his, um, his life, and especially in his death, where he most assuredly knows who he is, where he came from, what his authority is. He's not, you know, mild-mannered. And at the same time, he, um, he does not seek the limelight. In fact, most of the time, he's running away from it. He, um, he, he humbly accepts a death that's not deserved. Uh, in every way, he seems to have that balance because he understands his relationship to God. And he derives his worth, talking about earlier, from his relationship with God. So when he says here, you know, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, you know, he's, he's really, I think what he's offering here is like, if you'll live like I live, then you're going to find rest for your souls. Um, what's interesting about that, talking about Yeshua and, and his, his speaking to us, um, bless you, live for you. He actually ends up uh, speaking to us again, um, sort of in the future, but kind of not. So Revelation, chapter 22. Mm. I'm going to verses 12 through 17. So just to clarify for everyone, it's not Revelation. It is the revelation, the revelation of Yeshua. There we go. Yeah, um, that was John. that was a brief a brief flavor a, a taste of the, uh, the 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 class I'm eagerly anticipating coming up yeah, later yeah, this yeah. year on uh, prophecy. But um, yeah, revelation of Yeshua. That that is what the book is called. It's actually the name of the book. Um, 
And so uh, Yeshua here is actually speaking. <laughs> that's the town. Yes. That's right. That's the town. Not the Very confusing. First Peter's. First Peter's. Revelations. Right, right, right. Um, so uh, Yeshua here is speaking to John. That again, this is his prophecy that he is giving to John, um, and he says. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, and the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Yeshua, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the assemblies. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Here's some uh, similar language, Isaiah. Absolutely. What's a key word here? Thirst. Without. Thirst, there we go. Without cost, without yeah, cost. phrase. I think the word come shows up a lot too. Yeah. It's this constant, the same thing Yeshua says, he's going to come unto me, right? So this, 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 this uh, calling out to us, like, like wisdom, right? Come unto me. This is calling out to take. Um, and that's the thing that's really so amazing is that in the in the Isaiah passage and then here in Revelation and then throughout what we've been reading, um, God's comment, my dad says, without cost. Um, there's not a there's not an entrance requirement, entrance fee, to uh, to keep the Torah. You know, God doesn't say, well, okay, if you're going to keep it, you better keep it all perfectly. And if you don't keep it all perfectly, you might as well not even try. Um, instead, the the idea is that um, every mitzvah has has a benefit has a blessing as a reward and God is crying out to us to ask us to to come and take of that to enjoy that to appreciate it um, and there's no there is no cost well I think it's beyond that there is a great cost to no, us but at the same time there's but, but it, I think it's beyond that I think the way it's normally taught is you know do the, do the best you can who could really do it kind of thing oh and I know we don't agree with mm -hmm. that um, but I think it's beyond what you were saying to the point of even if you don't do it right, the Torah even tells you what to do then. <laughs> if you mess it up, it tells you how to fix it. Right. right? Oh, well, look, you can't bring a, you know, a, a sacrifice like that. But if you do, right. then you do this. Right. If you borrow somebody's stuff and you bust it, right. here's how you make it right. And and I think that's an important part that's often overlooked in the assemblies today, that it can be done. And even if you don't get it right the first time, even as you work to please Him, not work to earn something, but right. simply work to please Him, He makes it clear how to please Him, even in our frailties. And that, to me, that's very comforting. Absolutely. Um, and that's what I think I'm, that's what I was trying to get at thank you um, not to say that yeah right, we don't want to have an excuse and thinking like well I don't have to do it all or as long as I do a little bit that's something um, but more the idea that um, more the idea that like you know it, with so much in life sometimes it feels like you need to have something before you can get to the main thing mm -hmm. you know you um, you, you, uh, you know, some, a lot of jobs these days you you know, they expect you to have a college degree before you look at your your resume. There are some jobs that are stopping you to do that, which I think is smart. But there's still a lot of jobs that are that way, um, and it's like so that's like an entrance requirement, right? So you can't you can't even get your foot in the door unless you had that. With basically every job, and this is to all those who are looking for one, if you happen to be, you probably should know somebody. Probably should know somebody because <laughs> that's definitely going to get won't you. They won't talk to you. Yeah, they won't talk to you, no matter how many college degrees you have. Um, and the point being that like there's an entrance requirement. And I, but but with the Torah, there's not. I mean, God, you know, Yeshua, Yeshua calls the little children to Himself. God, as, as Greg was quoting earlier, God says, you know, it's not heaven that's too far from you. And that was actually the irony here. When you're when you were commenting on what I was saying earlier, is that there's this this notion that somehow like, well, it's too hard. You can't keep it. And God says exactly the opposite, repeatedly. Over and over again. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and as we see here, there is a there is a um, there's a correlation between the type of people who are inside the city experiencing the tree of life and so forth and the Torah 
and a correlation of people who are outside the city and failure to keep the Torah. That whole long list in Revelation, um, it's a whole bunch of actions. You know, what's, what's missing there is, you know, people of little faith. You know, instead you got murderers and idolaters and adulterers and those who love and practice lying. And basically the point being that, um, as my father has said, uh, you, uh, you, know, you are what you do, right? It's not like, it's not what you think, it's what you do. So that's something that I think that, you know, in our, in our walk with God, I think the people in this room understand that um, pretty well. But something we have to keep reminding ourselves, you know, just because you have some sort of mental ascent or relationship with God in your head doesn't really, that's not, that's not the full expression of it. And thinking about him is not prayer. <laughs> your verse said something interesting that's different from mine, 14 and Revelation 20, um, chapter 22. Mine says, blessed are those that do his commandments. Yours said, blessed are those that wash their clothes. Robes. Robes. Is that, is that Greek? Is that a similar Which, that what's a your version? Is it King James? King James. Yeah, that's the reason why. Mm. Okay. Actually, it's one of the places. There's, there's, about, uh, there's about seven places in Revelation where the King James actually has completely different texts than, than the uh, Texas. Is the Greek New uh, Testament version majority the, text? Yeah. Okay. Texas well, this seems to this go along with verse yeah. twelve, which says, "According to his works." And then it said, "Blessed are they that do his commandments." Yeah, I, I, so, I want to okay. encourage you, and, and I think Rick would agree. Um, you'll find where the differences are. They're mostly synonymous. <laughs> so, how do you wash your robes? Right. right. right? How do you make yourself clean? Who is it that has a clean heart or a pure heart and clean hands, right? It's, it's, it's the man who keeps the commandments of God. So, and that's know, actually the answer for, for, for our detractors were who would you quote that verse? Say, yeah, but that's not what my version says, right, so right. I don't have to keep his commandments. <laughs> you say, how do you wash your robes? Come on. Exactly. <laughs> Obviously, we're talking about a metaphor. And, and, and really, it's a great way to study the Word of God. And read it in, in some of the different, different versions. In some of the different good I versions. I prefer the King James right there myself. Yeah. I like yeah, that, that's a good I think it's I think it's more to the point. But it's interesting because it says wash your robes in in in, in, in the majority text, but Texas Receptus talks about keeping commandments. And it's interesting because wash robes is rep, is a reparation. Hmm. It doesn't say keep your robes clean. It does say that Whereas when you read keep my commandments, it's almost like well you I didn't have to disobey them to learn that, right? Good, yes, so good. It, it brings to mind exactly what you're talking about, is in the sense that, that, that Scripture provides a, an opportunity for reparation, mm -hmm. an opportunity for repairing, for repentance. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it assumes that we will, in fact, Do these not things. be successful, yeah. at least at times. And it brings it reminds me of a, of a and if I've said this before, forgive me, but reminds me of a concept that we have in professional aviation, and that is what, what we call, the concept is threat and error management. And, and error management says that pilots aren't perfect, and that pilots will make mistakes. And so we have to, we, we have to provide a way for people to actually manage those errors, fix it by managing them. In years past, that was not the way it was at all. In years past, because you would never tell a pastor, and by the way, uh, do you want your pilot to make mistakes? Everybody goes, no, I want zero mistakes, zero mistakes. Well, that's Can't stupid. Can't take off now. <laughs> that's stupid because you're, you have human beings flying airplanes. The, the computers will make mistakes. Human beings make more mistakes, you know. But the human being can actually can fix his mistakes. And that's the difference. And so what we, what we in aviation have done is we have a safety culture that is far more robust than almost any other industry in the world. And the reason why is because we recognize people make mistakes. And you have to provide a way for people to learn that they make, accept they make mistakes is actually the first thing. You will make mistakes. Something will go wrong. How, will you, how yeah. will you then manage, what are the most common errors, and how are you gonna manage and spot the times when you make the errors? We actually train people to be able to identify their own errors. And then to then to be able to circle back and fix it, right? As a, safety, as a safety concept. Well, it's exactly what we're talking about in Scripture. God knows that we are flesh and blood and that we will fail. But he's provided a way for us to have a goal, not for perfection, but for obedience. Hmm. Where we make mistakes, we, we fix it, and we learn from our mistakes. That's why we talk about washing our robes is because 
We're told to we're told to obey. But we may not always be successful. But ultimately, if we're washing our robes, we are successful. We're obedient. So not perfect. You see that we're obedient. The, you see that in the two sons, right? Mm-hmm. Father says, you know, go out and do this. And one says, no. But later on, he does. So right. he fixed the problem. Right. He's the one that was right. was lifted up. The one that said he would and didn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, that was helpful. <laughs> it also brings accountability to it because most pilots have a second one. I told my boss we were talking about how to implement a certain test for a procedure, and I said two blind tests. I do it independently from you, right. and we come together to see if we get the same results. Mm-hmm. And in the end, if the answer is yes, then we have a good idea that it's probably correct. Same way with the... And in aviation, what we do is by having two of us, we actually have to create a culture whereby we're, we're transparent. We're allowed to criticize one another within the context of our flying. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> it can be harsh. Yeah. No, actually, it's not. The culture in the last 30 years is dramatic. It's like almost like you... You ask the average pilot, hey, do you know you criticize the other guy constantly? No, I, I don't. And I said, yeah, actually, you're following procedure. That's exactly what you're doing. And what they, what they discovered is the concept, our egos are not, in, in, are not impinged or inflicted unless it's done outside the context of a flight deck. Uh, if we're doing it somewhere else, deck, it's, it's like, how dare you criticize me? Yeah. I'm a professional, right? But inside the context, cool. it's okay. And in the same way, so when we point out our, when we, when we confess to one another, and when we help one another in walking obediently, within the context of walking obediently, it shouldn't offend us. That's right. And it won't offend us if we have the correct posture. Unless we feel really guilty posture. and then we're going to project. <laughs> right. But no, it's, interesting that you, it's interesting that you mentioned the specific thing about calling people out because uh, in Isaiah 55, the passage we were reading, we just mentioned that, that Yeshua is the, uh, the root of David, on. right? Um, in Isaiah 55, uh, Verse, uh, verse three said, "I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples." Um, that verse four there, I made him a witness to the peoples. Rashi's commentary there, he, he, he sees this as being Mashiach. He sees this character as being a Messiah character. Um, but the witness to the peoples is not is not witness like uh, it's not witness like um, you know. Let me let me tell you about the gospel. It's more he acts calling out their faults. He is he uh, as Yeshua talks about himself, you know, like they, um, yeah, I believe it's um, John fourteen or fifteen. He's like they didn't have sin until I came around. But now I'm here. They know what sin is. They know what sin is. Well, they all, they they see what they see what perfection looks like. But at the same time, too, he he did call it out. He he said what it was, and that, so he's um, that's one of the things that he does. He is a witness to the peoples um, to to teach them. Um, but at the same time, it's a leader and commander for the peoples, which is a really interesting terminology here, um, because it's not a leader and a commander just for you, to the people of Israel. Um, Mashiach's character is uh, uh, is king of the nations. He's king of everybody, and uh, and so when you read through the beginning of this passage, it starts to kind of create a different image in your mind, thinking about Mashiach. And what he's going to do, and who he is, because he is the head of a kingdom, not just you know the loving shepherds and the gather of the sheep. Um, not that's not a beautiful thing by itself, but it is. But um, but if someone would read here um, Isaiah fifty four eleven through let's read through uh, fourteen. Hmm? Okay. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in anatomy and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and, you st- and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by Adonai, mm-hmm. and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. So go now to Revelation. Yeah, right. Some of you are probably already there. Right. Go to Revelation chapter twenty-one, 
15. I'm still. Uh, let's see. I'm sure. sure. We want to start there. 18. Um, Actually, I want to start with verse 9. I, I want to start with verse 9. Let's read verse 9 through. Well, really kind of. It's, it's pretty cool. The whole passage is pretty cool. I got um, it. 9 to 27. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I'll show the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Pause right there for a second. Sorry, I know I cut you off right a little bit. So, where, who are we going to go see? The bride. Wait, I thought that I was the... Aren't we the bride? Where, what are we going to go see? Continue reading. Okay. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopras, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. How far? To the end of the day. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, who is the bride? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay. Sorry, I had a fr I, I pointed this out to a friend one time. He's like, Alex, whenever you see um, a um, the bride's vehicle pulling up, you say, "There's the bride." You're not talking about the car. You're talking about the person in the car. <laughs> so he, I liked his coin as to how he justified this saying. That's well, funny. actually, that's good. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah. That's a good. So. <laughs> but I think, but the, the thing is, what I like about that is, I think you're right, and and at the same time, it is Jerusalem. And I think what's beautiful about it is because. What do we talk about? Jerusalem's not a place. Right, right. Well, it is, and it's not. That's the thing. When you say just the place, when you say when you talk about um, Messiah as king, that inherently means he is the head of a kingdom. Kingdom. Well, what is a kingdom? Well, a kingdom is a place. It's also a people, and that's what Jerusalem is. Jerusalem is is repeatedly throughout scriptures personified, and not just in the sense personified as an allegory personified in, in, in a very literal sense because it's full of people, people who are doing things, good or bad. And, and the place where he chose to put his name. Right, it is a place where God dwells as well. And so as you read through this passage, um, I think the reason why it's called the bride, although I do like the, uh, the car image, that, that's a good cool. one. Um, the, uh, I think the reason why it's called the bride, as well as the people of God called the bride, is because Jerusalem is the people of God. This Jerusalem is, I should say. Uh, if you read the end of the passage, what does it say? Who is there? Those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That would be the people of God. So I think it's really, um, 
I, the reason why I highlight that it's not just because I, I wanted to play games with you and, and um, get you to kind of question what you believe. It's more in the sense that I wanted you to to realize that there is a there's a there's a kingdom element here. It's not we don't just have a personal relationship with God. God has a relationship with the people. His people, Israel, a persona or encapsulated, a, um, you know, a symbolically summed up in Jerusalem, um, and then ultimately all together in the New Jerusalem um, is that kingdom, and is that and is that um, combination? Yes, sir. We could we could say God is our savior, but it would be most improper to say Yeshua is my Messiah. Okay. Because he is our Messiah. It is about a collective. It's not us individually. Mm -hmm. Even though he may have saved me personally from my own woe, mm -hmm. as Messiah, he is head of a people. He's your master, but he's our Messiah. Yeah, I think that's really important to keep that in mind because it, it does change the, the scope of the relationship with God a little bit. Not, again, not to diminish the, uh, you know, that leaves the 99 to go look for the one kind of thing. There is a very personal interaction with God that is um, that is incredible. Well, we talked about that last week, right? I mean, the whole concept of the individual salvation and the national salvation, right? right? I mean, it's, it's two parts. So you can't have one without the other. Right, well, you can't. Yeah, you can't. And I think that's, um, this is what makes uh, Yeshua makes, makes Hashem really the ultimate in king in kings because he has the ability to have that very intimate one-on-one -on -one relationship with any one of us um, and at the same time to um, to act and think and do for the whole you know he doesn't lose sight of the whole for the sake of the individual or vice versa which I think is so oftentimes a trap that, that humans fall into you know the, the man who uh, the you know the, the, the president who exchanges the you know the terrorists to save the one guy could potentially be leading to deaths of many more. On the flip side, you know the 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 man who says, "Well, but we don't really care about how many lives are lost as long as the you know the 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 summation is is greater on the on the positive side from the action is also kind of losing sight of things too. So there's it goes in both ways. But as humans, we're limited. God is not. And that, is, and that is ultimately how his relationship is. I mean, look at this. Verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. I mean, think about that, um, that concept. This is exactly what you were saying earlier. Dad has talked about this idea of going back to the garden. This is a relationship with God that needs no intermediary. There is no system in which you approach God. God is just there, and you're there with him. Um... And that kind of relationship is 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 physically impossible in, in this present age, uh, in this present earth, um, because of our sin and because of the corruption of the of the universe. But God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth in which that that perfection that was there before is there again. Which is New Jerusalem that we're reading about, not the Jerusalem on which Messiah will, from which He will reign from on this earth. Right. So we're talking about something different. Right, something different. Something but, renewed, but different. Right, but not heaven. It's, not it's a heaven. physical thing. This is the next class, guys. Yeah. Now, ah, uh, yes, but um, the point, though, that I'm trying to get at here is if you think about, if you think about Yeshua, because that's really what the point of this entire study is. We're talking about Yeshua. We're getting to know our Master better through um, the, 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 the Shabbatot of Consolation and through Handel's Messiah. Um, he's a king. That is who he is, and he's a head of a kingdom. Um, if you've listened to, and we'll get into this more in future lessons, but if you listen to the end of Handel's Messiah, I mean, it's amazing. I bet you didn't, who, who, who here knew that Handel's Messiah doesn't end with the resurrection? <laughs> I mean, it's a cr incredible to think about. I, I mean, I can't think of, uh, there are a handful of, you know, Easter musicals or plays I've been to that have kind of like a, a heavenly ending to it. Um, uh, I, <laughs> I do recall one of those one time. Um, the uh, the guy that played Jesus, he, he he seriously had the look of like some sort of rock star, you know, standing in the uh, the baptismal pool with like the the shining light behind him and like the smoke coming out from the bottom. Uh, you know, it's the best we could do, right? Um, but the point being that uh, that Mashiach here, uh, the story does not end with his resurrection. Just as we were saying earlier, um, death and resurrection were not 
were not his sole mission when he came here to Earth. It was a piece of what is really a two-part plan. Part one was, was accomplished. Part two is yet to come. But part one is not independent of part two. Messiah coming and, and granting us you know, opportunity to live forever with him was not the end goal. The end goal is that he would reign king here on earth and then reign as king forever and eternity in the new in the new heaven and earth with us. Amen. So, um, and but, but think about the, the tie-in there, though. So we look at the the end of this Isaiah passage that we read. The sages who put the passage together, they did it. I think they did it for a reason. It starts with talking about this restoration of Jerusalem, this this futuristic restoration of Jerusalem, and then it continues by saying, you know, basically, mm-hmm. come to me to eat what satisfies. Well, what do we see repeatedly in Revelation? Who's there? Him. Him. And those who do what? Keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. Those who obey Watch him. Um, Wash their garments. Right? <laughs> uh, the, point, the point being that, that the point being that, they, um, that there, is, there is a synergy here. You know, God's, uh, the, this, this uh, heavenly picture um, is not just an escape from a hard earth. You know, I think that sometimes we can't, in this way it gets treated. Um, the, there's actually an interesting uh, concept in, in Judaism or um, almost like, not to say this is really what it is, but I've heard, I think it was Rabbi Mike talked about this one time, almost like this idea of like, uh, for the wicked, the worst possible punishment for them would be to be in heaven. Because that is the what they've absolutely rejected as their core being. They don't want to spend the rest of the eternity serving God. That was what they were fighting the whole time they were on Earth, and that is what we're doing. You know, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think, and I think that for those of us who want to be obedient, follow that heart of David, right? Read from Psalm 19. It's beautiful and it's wonderful and it makes us. It satisfies, it makes us feel complete. Can you imagine? I mean, we talked about the Torah providing for reparation, <clears throat> providing for sin. But can you imagine never sinning? Never doing something wrong? Only serving God continuously, over and over and over again, and reaping the benefits of that unbroken relationship in, in, a, in a complete and full capacity. There's no walls that we're throwing up because of our sin. It's my motivator every day. Wow. So if that's what you live for now, the antechamber, as my father-in-law likes to talk about, um, to go into the, the banquet hall, then that banquet hall is going to be what you what you really, really want. Amen. But if, if you're not willing to live that way now, why would you want to spend eternity doing that? It's not, it's not the old, you know, the old adage, sometimes you've heard this before, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. There is no do righteousness when I'm dead. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, those are my thoughts on this week's lesson. Nicely <laughs> <laughs> done. Uh, any other comments, final comments? I told my wife it was really it's really cool to come into a room in which I am surrounded by men who are actually teachers. Um, it's quite an interesting experience to be teaching multiple teachers um, as opposed to uh, uh, you know when, when I, I remember being younger and whatnot trying to lead like you know peers or whatever else um, uh, who had not had that experience necessarily of, of teaching or leading. Um, but I am blessed to be able to be in a room full of men who um, not only can can have insights or comments or things they want to say, but um, but but have earned that right to to make those comments. So thank you all for being here. Thank you. Um, if I could get someone to close us in prayer, Gregory, would you close us in prayer? I'd be glad to. Avino Makino, our Father, our King. What a privilege it is to study together, to learn your word, and that we would look to your commandments as something that are not burdensome, but something that we need to live by, something that we find you 
buried in there. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to open our eyes, that we may perceive wonders from your Torah, that this lesson would would seep into our minds throughout this week, and we'd bring it to memory, and it would encourage us and inspire us to run after you even more, and to live a life that you have called us to live. We pray, Father, that uh, where we thank you, Father, just so much for, for all that you've done for us. We thank you for Joshua and for the time that he's spent on this wonderful lesson and Juliana. And we pray, Father, that you would also bless my father-in-law for opening up his home as a house of study, that you would continue to bless him and bless the work of his hands. B'Shem B'Shua, Amen. 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 <laughs> Thank you, Joshua. Believe it or not, Thank I actually brought 15's old phone. Oh, cool. It's been sitting in a drawer forever, so.